0: Hello and welcome everyone to Westside Christian Church. Today, John Wade is bringing the teaching to you. So grab a Bible and join us as we study God's Word together. This past Friday was St. Patrick's Day. And for all of his failings, um, Patrick said some things that I really enjoyed. um, And I want to read to you just one line from the Confession of St. Patrick. He said, my name is Patrick. I'm a sinner, a simple country person, and the least of all believers. I think that line is powerful. And it's crucial to our understanding of who we are as believers. I think that's an important confession that we all make that we are least, that we are lowly. It's important for a right understanding of who we are and an important understanding for rightly knowing who God is and appreciating the greatness of his love. Well, we're getting close to the end of chapter 1 of uh, 1 Peter. We got, uh, I think, two more weeks uh, of of chapter one, and then uh, it's Passion Week uh, and Easter Sunday. Uh, so uh, we will be uh, taking a short break from First Peter uh, to examine the the Easter story uh, and Passion Week. Uh, but uh, we got a, a couple more weeks of of uh, this first chapter of First Peter, and some wonderful um, stuff in the remaining few verses. Now. I don't know if you're like me. I like, uh, I like television shows and movies that showcase characters that have uh, elaborate, elaborate plots and plans in mind. It doesn't really matter if they're a hero or a villain in the story. I like a, uh, a strategy, a scheme, a plan, a plot um, that, uh, that's involved. And I like them when they're intricately done, when it's not just chaos, when it's well-organized. And it's funny because, uh, because it really doesn't have to be a hero. It can be an anti-hero or even a villain or a criminal. I still end up enjoying the story and being caught up in the details of how meticulously things were calculated and prepared. Take, for example, one of my favorite movies from back in 2006. Anybody remember Inside Man with Denzel Washington? Anybody remember that movie? I love that movie. Um, it, uh, it starred not only Denzel Washington, but Clive Owen and uh, Jodie Foster. Um, the movie starts out perfect. Uh, Clive Owen gives just a, a brief monologue, setting up the entire movie, uh, showing that uh, he is this bank thief in perfect control of what follows, of everything that follows. That there's not a single thing out of place, that every word that he says is done for a reason. And as the movie begins to play, various elements unfold and you begin to wonder about this cocky bank robber's plan, if it's actually working or not. One begins to see in the movie and all these different things happening and you wonder if it's not going to go like every other bank heist movie like Dog Day Afternoon. Without revealing the full plot, just in case somebody wants to see one. I know it's a little late for spoilers that being that long ago, but I don't want to give it away just in case somebody hasn't seen it and wants to. Clybone's character does exactly what he says in the movie. His perfect bank robbery goes exactly as he intended. Every detail plays out, and just as he declares that it would, and just as he says he would, he walks right out the bank's front door, unhindered, unharmed and in full possession of, what, of exactly what he intended to steal. Or take both the, the movies Now You See Me. Uh, both involve intricate and elaborate plans and plots and until the final moments of the movie you don't see how all the elements work together. You don't see how they come together so neatly. I love those kind of movies with the complex plots I love that movie, that that moment of revelation in the movie when the pieces all fit together neatly, that aha moment. And this morning we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that shows us that this life, existence, this world, all of this has a plan. All of this is part of something much bigger, something much more orchestrated than we could ever imagine It's a passage that for believers gives us great hope and assurance, and it creates a sense of longing and looking forward to the final revelation of Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we approach the text this morning, we pray your blessing. Father, we pray you'd help us to understand. Father, we as human beings, we like to know how all the pieces fit together. Father, forgive us for the Hubris, forgive us for the the um, impatience when we try to rush ahead of you, when we try to get out in front and see things that we're not supposed to see just yet, but that one day we'll see how they all fit together. Father, we pray that you would help us to be patient. We pray that you would help us to remember that you are good all the time. And all the time, you are good. Father, help us to... Um, to understand that that you are sovereign, that you are great and mighty, and that you are working all things, even the things that we don't understand, even the things that are terrible in this world, that you are working around those and even through those sometimes to accomplish great good for those that love you and also for your ultimate great glory. Help us to see that, Father. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter one, verse 20 through 21 says this. He, referring to Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Previously, we've seen Peter talk about hopeful and holy living, about righteous fear, and about how the joy and hope that we have was bought, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Peter continues talking about Jesus, saying that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And we've already talked a little bit about foreknowledge of God. We've already talked about that a little bit, but just as a reminder, when we speak about the foreknowledge of God, we're not talking about guessing, we're not talking about hypothesizing, we're not talking about speculating. We are talking about a deep, intimate, innate knowledge, a face-to-face knowledge that exists perfectly and completely. Even before time begins. In eternity past, God already knew intimately what would happen and planned and worked in such a way to accomplish exactly what he intended. Namely, in this case, as Peter's talking about, the coming and work of Jesus. Peter says, before the foundation of the world, that's a uh, typical expression of speaking of creation. Before the founding of the world, before the creation of the universe, before anything or anyone except for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed, he had a plan that Jesus would come into flesh, adding to his divinity, humanity, and that he would go to the cross as sacrifice for the sins of his people. This was the plan all along. God was not surprised. He didn't, we didn't throw God for a loop, when, and then he had to recover when we sinned. God wasn't bewildered or confused. God knew his plan, and he worked it exactly as he intended This is one of the things that we've done a great disservice to our people by teaching them a terrible idea that God is somehow responding and reacting in such a way that, oh, he had to come up with something because he was at a loss. No, God was never at a loss. God is entirely sovereign. He knew and had this planned. He knew what would take place. He knew what would transpire, and he had a plan in place all along for what would happen after we sinned. Recently in our apologetic studies, we were discussing Islam, and we saw in a video uh, a Muslim apologist. He asked, why, if Jesus was God, didn't, uh, why didn't he come at a time in history with video cameras, with 24-7 news channels, and even live streaming on Facebook and the Muslim apologists uh, couch this question basically judging God, judging his timing. And I love the way the Christian apologist in the video responds to him. He says, God knows. God knows why he did what he did in the time frame that he did. It wasn't arbitrary, in this case meaning irrational, frivolous, or unreasonable. God worked his plan exactly as he intended, and Jesus arrived right when he was supposed to. Jesus was not late. He was not early. He arrived precisely when he he meant to, just like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Talking about wizards arriving neither early nor late. He arrives precisely when he means to. He doesn't come too early or too late. He comes at a point in history when he knows exactly what's going to happen and it fulfills not only prophecy, but also makes payment. The circumstances were all correct when he arrived. Every bit and piece was in place. Every thread coming together I've used this illustration before, but I think it's worth mentioning again. In the children's movie, The Prince of Egypt, it's not exactly the most biblical rendering of the story of Moses. But one of the things that I enjoy about that movie is the scene with Moses' father-in-law. And Moses' father-in-law is singing the song, and he's talking about a tapestry, and how a single thread in the tapestry, it doesn't understand its place. It doesn't understand its function. It doesn't understand its role in the greater picture of the tapestry. It's a single thread. And by itself, it looks like nothing. It looks like nothing. A picture is not woven on the one thread. It's by all the threads coming together, both horizontally and vertically. All the threads coming together to form the one picture all these pieces slowly put into place to finally bring the fullness of what is intended by the creator. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 through 5 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Notice what Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, not uh, just at some point, not at any given day. When the fullness of time had come, when the appointed hour arrived, when the planned day came, when the exact moment in history that God had planned arrived, Jesus arrived in flesh, it was perfectly orchestrated. Peter says that when this moment in time came, that Jesus was made manifest. That's such an important series of words for our theology. He was made manifest. Now, that's so important because we need to understand that Jesus was not made. He is not created. Rather, he was made manifest. The Greek word translated here in English is as was made manifest, can also mean the following. To be made to appear, to be revealed, to be seen, to be shown, to be disclosed, or to be displayed or made visible. Jesus was not created, he is creator. He is not a created being, he is creator God, who at the proper time in history reveals himself in accordance with the perfect plan, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been working for a very, very long time. At exactly the right moment, Jesus comes into human existence to accomplish the eternally intended plan of salvation. And when he does, he ushers in the beginning of the last times. Now, you and I hear that. And like so many people before us, we think that that phrase means that time is short. And that within our lifetime, we may see the return of Christ. And that's certainly a possibility. Certainly possible. And most assuredly. We should live in light of that reality. We should live as Christians as though Christ is returning imminently. Scripture instructs us that way. But we've been living in the last times for almost 2,000 years now. So can we realistically say it might be in our lifetimes? Possibly, but not necessarily likely. The last times doesn't have to be a short amount of time. The last times doesn't indicate any length of time at all. It simply indicates when in the order of proceedings this time period takes place. And this time period is the last one before something else begins. This is the last time before something else begins. And that's the beauty of it. Because... We're not doom and gloom. We're not like all these groups that, the end is near. The end is nigh. Woe is me. We need to be afraid. We need to stockpile food. We need to do, fill in the blank. We got to go buy more ammo. Don't get me wrong. I'm always a fan of more ammo and going out to shoot. But not because of the last times. Now, the last times is about. This, this way, this sinful state of creation passing away, this will end and something else will begin. This will stop and cease and something new will start. Something beautiful, something intricately detailed and planned with great detail. This is the last period of its kind. This is the last period of time where suffering is seen on the face of the earth. This is the last period of time where death holds sway on this planet. This is the last period of time where sin reigns in the hearts of men. This is the last period of time before Christ ushers in. A new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new kingdom that is utterly unlike anything that has been seen since God first walked with man in Eden. Christ is creating a new place, a new way of life that is utterly unlike anything that we can imagine. And Peter continues saying that Christ was revealed For the sake of believers. He says something interesting about belief, doesn't he? Peter says, you through him, Jesus, are believers in God. How are we believers in God? How does the text say? Through Christ Jesus. This is so very important for us to understand. We wouldn't even be capable of believing in God. If he had not revealed himself to us. That's grace. That's grace, my friends. God could perfectly well have left all of us to rot in our sin and rebellion. He could have turned us over to our sinful desires, rightly saying, to hell with you. To hell with you. But God in his love and his compassion, he condescends, he incarnates, he takes on flesh to walk among us, reveal himself to us and ultimately to make payment for us. That is grace and mercy that is beyond my feeble understanding. By his power and plan we are believers and we trust in him. By his power, by his grace, by his love we do not get what we deserve. We get what only Christ deserves. But the story isn't complete without remembering fully that Christ doesn't just die. He doesn't stay dead. By the power of the Father, Jesus is raised back to life and given glory. And this is a very important part of the plan, very important for our understanding of God. First, if Jesus stays dead, there's not really any hope. There's not really any hope. A dead savior can't save. A dead savior can't save. He couldn't even save himself. How could he save somebody else? How could one who is dead offer life? Not only that, but Jesus would have been shown to be a liar since he said that he would come back from death to life and glory. Paul even goes so far to say in his writings that if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, your faith is useless. Your faith is useless. If Christ has not raised from the dead, if he's not indeed God in the flesh, then our faith is useless. It's pointless. It's a waste of time. But he is not dead, my friends. People have been looking for that body for a long time. And it isn't there. Going on 2,000 years, Jesus is alive and well. Resurrected body, unlike anything that we know. Able to eat and drink and experience hunger and thirst, yet able to move with an uncanny ability through walls and appear in places that are locked. Amazing. But notice that when he comes back to life, it's not just to a body like he had before. This, this new body that he has is glorified. We often miss this in the text, which is why there are so many bad understandings of Jesus out there, like in Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witness cult. The Father glorifies the Son, If Jesus is just a man, even a man who is exalted, who's lifted up, the Father could not glorify him, or he would be in error. Who deserves glory? God. Only God. Does a man deserve glory? No. Only God deserves glory. If the Father gave glory to Jesus, the only option is that Jesus is indeed God. Or God himself was in error. No. Jesus was indeed and is indeed God. He deserves all glory. When the Father glorifies him, he is doing what is natural. He is doing what is right. Jesus deserves all glory and is given all glory. And not just all glory, but all authority on heaven and and on the earth has been given to Christ Jesus. Jesus is not merely a man. A man, no matter how holy, no matter how righteous, does not deserve the same recognition as God. God and man are inherently different. God is creator, man is creation. They are not on equal footing. Right now, for my own personal devotion, I'm reading the book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And if you follow us on Instagram, you've seen a couple of quotes that I've highlighted from the book that talk about God's holiness. And one of the things that strikes me over and over and over again is that God is the only one who is holy. There is nothing inherently holy in the rest of creation. There is no holy place. There is no holy object. There are no holy people. God alone is holy. And only by God touching... Only by God making something holy is it declared holy. Only by God's work may we be made holy because we are other than Him. He is different from us, we are not on equal footing. Yet the Father honors Jesus as God, giving him glory and honor. This means Jesus must be God. There is no other possibility. So why does all this happen? Why such an intricate plan? Why such a detailed plan? Why all of the pieces over thousands of years coming together and being put together in the way that they are? Why is it important? How does it affect you as a believer today? Peter tells us. He says all of this happens so that your faith and hope are in God. All of this happens so that you can love and trust and honor and worship and glorify and enjoy God forever. You loving and trusting God wouldn't be possible without the work of God Scripture describes us as dead in our sin. A dead man can't do anything. A dead man can't do anything. But when God raises a dead man to life, when God raises a dead man to life, He breathes true life into him. And He is living indeed. God is more than capable of raising the dead. He is the author of life itself We're told in Scripture, one of the most beautiful images of humanity, that God knits us together as human beings. He knits us together. While we're still in the womb, He's putting us together like a person sitting down to knit a scarf. There's intention. There's process. There's procedure. There's creativity in this. God has design in mind. And God designs us for himself. That we should be given life by him. Not just the breath of life, but true and eternal life. And it's not possible without him. We are made for him. To enjoy him forever. Even in the Old Testament before Jesus' coming, it took an act of God in the lives of men for them to come to know him. Think about Abraham who become or Abram who becomes Abraham and how God intercedes in his life and calls him to a new life filled with great purpose and a plan. Think of how God speaks to and protects Isaac. Think of how God wrestles with Jacob, touching his hip and wounding him. Think of how God appoints judges and anoints kings. Think of how the prophet Isaiah, one of the most holy men of his day, comes into the temple and into the very presence of God and seeing it pronounces destruction on himself. Woe to me! For I've seen the Holy One. And it is by God's grace that Isaiah is touched with a coal from the altar of the worship of God and made holy. It takes an act of God. It takes God's intercession in history. It takes God's movement and work to accomplish the making holy, the making righteous, the making living of that which is dead. And this is our great hope as Christians. That he loves us. That he has worked in history to accomplish this plan. To reveal himself in history. To make it possible to know him and to love him and to worship him. This is our great hope. That God himself has worked and accomplished all that we may have faith in him. You want to know how this affects you? It should give you great hope and great joy. It should fill your spirit with a love for God that pours out of you in praise and adoration The church in America right now I weep for, not because I see a decline, but because I see this lack of love for God. I see a church that is filled with people who want more entertainment. They don't want worship. They don't want true worship of God. My friends, I cannot express to you enough how important this is. We're entertained to death in our culture. You don't need to come here for more entertainment. You need to come here to worship and praise the one who loves you. You need to come here to pour out your adoration to him, to give him glory. This is our purpose. This is our reason for existing. And I promise you, you will never find true happiness. You will never find true joy without pouring out the praise that you were made to pour out. May we, as Christians, ever praise him. May we always adore him. May we always love him and worship him in spirit and in truth as he commands. May we take joy in him now and forevermore. That is my prayer this morning. This morning, we're going to have a song of praise to our God for the good things that He's done. We typically do a time of invitation, and if you need to respond to the work of God, if He is moving in your life right now, calling you, don't resist, don't hesitate. But for the rest of us that believe, Let's use this time to sing this song in praise to our God, thanking him for revealing himself to us and rescuing us out of sin, of resurrecting us to new life. And not just new life here and now, but eternal life that will come. Why don't we do that now? Why don't we praise him? We stand and sing together. Thanks for joining us for the message today. If you would like more information about this and other teachings, or you'd just like to know more about Jesus, visit our website at wccjb.org or come visit us at 1405 Persimmon Ridge Road in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Check our website and Facebook page for service times. We hope you join us again and that we'll see you soon.